0: Hello, guys. Welcome back to the Broly Talks Hockey Podcast. And in today's special episode, I am joined by Ryan Bolding, And he broke into the, the hockey media landscape with blogging with sites like the Burgundy Blog, the Avalanche Guild, and Hockey on Rocks. And that led him to become a contributor for the Denver Post and The Athletic. So how are you doing, Zoe, Ryan? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. And before we get into how you got into sports journalism, I kind of want to know, what was your favorite team growing up?
1: Yeah, I grew up an Avalanche fan. I became a fan of hockey right around the time they moved to town, which was about fourth grade for me. Um, And so my passion for the team obviously grew with a very successful on ice product um, for their
0: good stretch there. And did you ever play hockey as a kid or were you not much involved into hockey growing up?
1: Yeah, I still play. I haven't played in a year because of the pandemic and I'm almost fully vaccinated. So I'm itching to get back out there. I love it.
0: So you're like one dose in then? I'm two, but it takes two weeks after the second one. So, oh, right. All right. And that leads me to my question about how you got into sports journalism. Like before you actually broke into the journalism world, what kind of led you to sports journalism?
1: Yeah, I, uh, it's kind of a funny story and in a roundabout way, but I, uh, one of my favorite movies growing up was Fight Club. Um, and I went, when I went to college, I went to the university of Denver and they had a hockey team. They have a hockey team. Um, they won the national championship when I was an incoming freshman and then they won again when I was a freshman. So that helped keep the, the passion going, especially my freshman year was during the, the 2004 NHL lockout. So back to fight club, I had a friend who said, Oh, the movie's great. Have you read the book? And I didn't even think there was a book. So I went and read it and I was like, wow, this is incredible the way this guy writes. I want to be a writer. So I started taking writing classes and and graduated with an English degree and a communications degree from DU. And after college, there was a a depression. There was no work. No, there's the Great Recession in 2008. So um, I was like, well, I should do what I went to school for, which was writing. And I should write about what I know, which is hockey. So I started the Burgundy blog. That was my first abs-based blog that I, that I started. And I noticed a lot of people wrote under pseudonyms and and screen names, but I always wanted to take it more seriously and and kind of leverage it into a potential future. So I started writing under my name and that early writing, let me tell you, is terrible. But it, it, you know, like anything, it takes practice. And so I started covering the team and, and kind of networking. And then it felt like there could be something more to this. So I I just kind of kept pursuing it and honing
0: my craft. And uh, you said you went to the University of Denver. How was your time at the University of Denver? It was great. I loved it. It was great having a hockey team.
1: Um, they were really good. They almost sold out every game when I was there. I've gone back a few times since. Um, and sometimes it's disappointing to me, the, the crowds there. But, um, you know, college, the whole college experience is great. You get to figure out where you fit in life, what you want to do with yourself. You get to learn a lot of things, especially just how to how to exist in the world with juggling responsibilities. Um, and I studied abroad in London. That's That was a tough time for me because there was no hockey that I got to see. So, uh, but I would definitely tell everyone and anyone who will listen to study abroad because it's such a, an eye opening experience. Um, and it helped to have a good hockey team there and, and get to make contacts. And, you know, I tried to, for a project, interview Terry Fry, who uh, covered the abs for the Denver post at the time and it was the playoffs and he was too busy. So it never really came to fruition, but now Terry's a good friend of mine. I know him really well, just having been in the the industry for so long and, and working for the team. So um, the college experience really set the stage for everything.
0: And one of the things that led you to was joining the professional hockey writer association. What kind of led you to join that?
1: Yeah, I think um, for the Avalanche, back when I started as a blogger, there was no uh, avenue for a blogger to get credentialed to cover games. So they only covered or tr- uh, credentialed traditional media members, so radio, television, mm-hmm. and newspaper and magazines. So I had to I worked my way up and and through networking, landed with Mile High Sports and kind of became their de facto Avalanche guy. Um, but it was only for their website. So the way to get around that. Uh, at the time was they had me write for their hockey issue of the Mile High Sports Magazine. And they had their radio hosts use me as kind of a a guest uh, correspondent to talk to Avalanche. And they had a TV show that aired on um, Altitude TV, which is the Avalanche's in-house network. And I did an interview on that as well. And so we kind of covered all the bases which allowed me to get in. And then once I was in and and proved that I deserved to be there, I wasn't like taking advantage of the situation um, the chapter head of the PHWA at the time, Adrian Dater, uh, saw that I was serious and allowed me to join. And so I've been on and off a member of that, depending on where my career's at since.
0: You actually got to work for the Colorado Avalanche. How was that experience?
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting s- switching sides, you know. So as an outsider or a fan, you only have one perspective on how the operation works. And I really got to see how the meat is made uh, on the other side. So when I worked for the team, I did everything we did. Me and one other person, we ran the team website. We wrote all of the web content. We shot all of the practice uh, interviews and coach interviews on video and transcribed them and wrote practice stories, pregame stories, postgame stories, future stories. We were in charge of editing and writing for the game program that you get at the game. Um, we had PR duties, so we did media relations with local media members. Um, I had to set up and break down the press conference room at the practice rink. Uh, I would help write liner notes for the coaches. So you know, the coaches, the GMs, the team president, whenever they were going to a, a press conference, we would kind of do a briefing with them or, or we'd give them notes of anticipated questions that you know, media members would answer. So they would have talking points if somebody was close to a milestone or if there was some turmoil in the organization, um, you know so I did a lot of that stuff and we posted photo galleries and we ran the social media for the team during the time there, it was a lot. We did a lot of work. It was a lot of long hours. Game days could be at home an 18 hour day on the road. It was more like
0: a 20 hour day. So did you ever find that very overwhelming working that much and, and that hard?
1: Yeah, at times uh, the most overwhelming moments were things like the draft or when we had the, the first stadium series game at Coors Field um, where, you know, the work never stops. When we did the stadium series game, uh, they actually bought me and my colleague Ron a hotel room uh, for the weekend down the street because I, I worked so long and so late. We didn't have time to go home before we had to go to bed and get up the next day and be back there. We actually, we were the last two people to leave Coors Field the first night after the alumni game against Detroit. And we had to call security at Coors Field to let us out because we were locked in the building. That's how late it was. Um, So times like that, the draft where you're scrambling particularly after the first round, you know, where the picks are coming fast and you're trying to do all this research and get all this information out to the fans and up on the website as quick as you can. And you've got to run downstairs and interview these guys and not sound like an idiot talking to them, even though you hardly know anything about them, <laughs> and then running back and putting it all up before the next guy gets picked. So stuff like that can be really stressful, but is really rewarding too.
0: Mm-hmm. And you, you eventually went to the Athletic and Denver Post. So for people who may not know, what's the difference between a freelance writer and a contributing writer or a stringer?
1: Yeah, so they're, they're kind of all the same. For the Denver Post, for newspapers, typically the stringer stringer is the, the phrase they use for somebody that they hire on a sort of freelance basis. So um, it's kind of a, a misconception with the Denver Post a little bit because I filled in more than just... On a on a sort of freelance basis, but it was mostly freelance. Um, you know, there were times, let's say, when I worked for the team where they the the local newspaper, the Denver Post, wouldn't have somebody travel to say Calgary for the game, so they would hire a local reporter, Stringer, in Calgary, to provide coverage for them and send it back. So I kind of did that for the Denver Post. They brought me on to do prep football a little bit, which is high school football out here. And I ended up doing one game for that. And then the avalanche beat writer ended up having some uh, health issues and needed surgery and was out for a period of time. So they kind of brought me in fill in as the team beat writer for him. Um, as they could afford, you know, paying one offs as a sort of freelance contract until he was better. So um, that one was a little different for the athletic um, as a contributor, it means that I wasn't hired on as their full-time writer. And so I just was paid per story that I wrote. And so I would pitch a story. For example, David Carl, the head coach of DU currently, um, when he was named head coach, I pitched them a story on on him. And so I wrote a story about his experience and how he ended up in the position. And they paid me for that. But it wasn't something where I was on salary with
0: the athletic. Okay. And going back a little bit, how did you kind of get started with Mile High Sports as well?
1: Yeah, so I'm with Mile High Sports again, kind of mm-hmm. doing a, I do a radio show on Saturdays with uh, a teammate of mine and my friend JJ Jerez. And then I also do a, a weekly column. So the first time I was with Mile High Sports, I got there kind of through networking and, and proving myself and they brought me on. And then when I got hired by the Avalanche, I left Mile High Sports. And so just recently, I, I know the owner, the guy in charge, and uh, I was doing a podcast with my friend JJ on there. And we decided to transition that to a weekly radio show. And I offered to do a weekly column as well. So now I kind of just pick a topic, whether it's avalanche related or NHL related um, or just larger hockey world related. One of my first columns for them was about how the olympics shouldn't be in china given that they're committing genocide and you know Mm -hmm. human rights atrocities against the uyghurs so um sometimes it may be a little more political than mile high sports likes or expects but they they kind of give me free range to do whatever i want and then the radio show has has been great we've had bob mckenzie on we've had you know hockey hall of famers adam foot on Uh, Greg Wyszynski has been on and Emily Kaplan from ESPN. So we try to make it fun and keep it a little bit avalanche and a little bit NHL and have some guests and kind of grow it from its infancy. All
0: right. And you, you talked a bit about your story about not having the Olympics in China. Would you say that's kind of the same comparison? Well, not the same comparison, but in a generalization as the MLB moving the all-star game out of Georgia.
1: In a way, yeah, I think uh, it, the MLB faced a lot of pressure to do that from uh, businesses and I would say sponsors. You know, mm-hmm. it seems to me the only way to really get a a large entity like the MLB to respond to something is through the sponsorships and the potential loss of sponsorships. So in a way, the the voting rights bill that was passed in Georgia. Uh, caused pressure on groups i'm sure to get the mlb to move and they're pretty progressive so Mm -hmm. they moved quickly and i would say it's it's similar in that regard but on the other hand you know the things that are happening in china are Mm -hmm. are way more severe um than what happened in georgia but it's very similar and you know the the olympics is a whole different animal when it comes to sponsorships and the mechanisms required to to get people there and the facilities required to host the games so it's something that takes a lot more work and to to kind of call attention to that early was my goal because you know it, it'll take a lot for people to start looking at not going mm-hmm. and I have seen some interest from politicians about uh, looking into it although I don't know that there's going to necessarily be a boycott But I did try to to draw comparisons to the fact that, you know, the United States looked at boycotting the Olympics in Nazi Germany ahead of World War II, and they decided not to. And it's kind of a, you know, a black stain on the country that they ended up going with Mm -hmm. everything that was going on there. So you would hate to see that happen again.
0: I was just going to ask, do you think that the U.S. is going to end up boycotting the Olympics?
1: Largely, probably not. It's hard to anticipate you know? Mm -hmm. um, I've seen more talk from Canada about it than than I have from America. Do you think Canada would end up doing it?
0: Yeah, maybe. I've heard uh, Trudeau, I know he abstained from his vote on whether to consider the uh, genocide in China, an actual genocide, but that could just be a purely political move, so I'm not too sure. Yeah, it's hard
1: to say, you know, and there's a lot of, when it comes to politics, there's a lot of games and a lot of posturing involved, so it's hard to hard to say when somebody says something if they'll actually follow through or not
0: Mm -hmm. and moving into the next topic which is just one question it's kind of about hockey and I was kind of curious are you big into hockey analytics or have you not really gotten into that that
1: it's hard to say
0: exactly for me how big into it I am I do believe in,
1: in hockey analytics, but sometimes I have a hard time connecting the dots unless they're super obvious, you know? So, Mm -hmm. um, I feel like sometimes when it comes to Corsi and scoring effects, the numbers can be skewed. Um, but there's no denying that there, there are statistical data available that can help whether it's analyzing the game, interpreting the game, presenting the game for somebody else, you know, or when it comes to scouting and that kind of thing. Um, it's been fascinating to see how the debate has changed from when they really kind of erupted onto the scene and, and were dismissed a lot. It seems like they're embraced a lot more.
0: Mm-hmm. And speaking of analytics, a team that has been big, that looks really good analytically is the Avalanche. And do you think that a guy like Sakik has been using analytics into some of his decisions? Or do you think it's just coincidental that it lines up a lot with the public analytics?
1: Yeah, I know, I know for a fact that they use uh, analytics. I know they, they hired uh, Eric Parnas when I worked there to start kind of building an analytics department. I don't know necessarily where it's at now, but he's been heavily involved in that. Um, I know that Chris McFarland had an intern um, that he'd kind of worked with in Columbus who was going to law school, I think at DU um, when I worked there, and he would bring him in to do some analytics stuff. And even before that, uh, I had pitched using um, an analytics company, John Chica's analytics company. I'm drawing a blank on what the name is now. I know Megan is running it now, right? Staffleets. Um Yeah. I had pitched using Staffleets after seeing some of their data. And uh, Tim Army, who's head coach of the Iowa Wild now, was an assistant coach under Patrick Waugh. He and I actually sat in on a presentation, a Staffleet's presentation with John, um, and, and really got to see what they, the platform offered. And it was eye-opening, I think, for the both of us, but I'm not necessarily certain it was something the organization was willing to pay for at the time. Mm-hmm. And then shortly thereafter, uh, Chica got hired by Arizona. So that I'm sure that kind of changed the thought process too. But I can say for certain, they definitely pay attention to it more now um, than when I had worked there.
0: And keeping going with the Avalanche, do you think well, there's three guys who have the potential to win an NHL award on the abs this year. So starting it off, do you think McCarr is a shot at the Norris this season?
1: I think he deserves to be in the conversation. The problem I see with Norris voting and all voting is there's an optical element to that where there's a bit of recency bias. So, you know, have, have enough people in the league watched enough avalanche games and, and has Kale McCard done enough, to stand out to them, even if they're casually watching a game, I'm not so sure. But I definitely think he is, is deserving of being in the conversation. The other hard thing about the Norris, I think, is there's a reputation aspect where it's, you know, the, the Brent Burns' and the Roman Yossi's time uh, to win the Norris. And so maybe some of the younger guys get overlooked and it's not necessarily fair. Mm-hmm. But I haven't, I haven't crunched the numbers to look and see what the competition is looking like. But I, I definitely think he deserves some consideration there for sure.
0: And the next one is goalie Philip Grubauer. Do you think he should be in the conversation for the Vesna as well? See, we talked about this on
1: my radio show on Saturday, and I have a hard time with <laughs> identifying who is deserving of a, of a Vesna season and who isn't because of sort of the way that the At least in the West division, the way that the, the parity between the top teams and the bottom teams is, it's hard to determine whether he's having an outstanding year because of his efforts or because half of the games are against Arizona and San Jose and L.A. and Anaheim, um, you know. So I think what he did in April and the amount of games he played, uh, or the, was it March? The games he played in March, you think he played 15 uh, mm-hmm. games or had 15 wins. That was incredible. That run that they had, they were pretty much an unstoppable juggernaut. So I, I definitely think he deserves consideration. But I also think the the overall performance of the team and the quality of the team should factor in in the Vesna conversation. And I go back to, I think it was 2013, uh, when Tuka Rask won the Vesna and Simeon Varlamov was a runner-up And he lost the Vesna and they had almost identical statistics, but Tuka Rask was on like a a Stanley cup powerhouse Boston Bruins team. And Varlamov was on an abs team. That wasn't great. And I thought that should have mattered in the conversation as well.
0: Mm -hmm. I remember a funny story about um, Varlamov. The last time that I remember hearing about him on the abs was when he had those like one season where he had so many injuries um, I forget what year it was, but it just like every week or month, I'd see like Varlamov's injured again.
1: Like, yeah, it how seems that? like he's been labeled as a, as an injury prone guy, but I don't, that hasn't really been the case with the Islanders and something I think uh, we're seeing now as teams try and have a real solid backup goalie where they can not rely on the starter as much. I don't think you'll see many goalies playing 60 games a season Moving forward because the the physical toll is so high and it hurts the team in the long run, right? So everybody was on Barlamov about being injury prone, and he had double hip surgery, um, just like Jamie Ben, where they they scoop out the hip joint and round off the the ball of your hip, uh, you know, in the top of your mm-hmm. femur. So that reduces groin injuries and. I don't think he's really been too injured since then. Whereas you saw Philip Grubauer got hurt last year in the bubble. Papa Francouz got hurt last year in the bubble. Um, Francouz never really recovered and had, I believe, the same, Joe Sackick said, the same surgeries Barlamov did to kind of recover. So I think it's kind of unfair sometimes to label a guy injury prone if they haven't ever fully recovered from what was causing it. Mm-hmm. But also I think the workload... Um, of goalies in in past seasons may have contributed to that concept
0: mm-hmm. and the final guy who I think every or who everybody thinks could be in the heart conversations McKinnon do you think he has a solid chance at the heart this season
1: that's another one just like the Vesna where I think the the quality of his his teammates should have an impact in the conversation and so um, he's been incredible he's on a what a 15 game point streak right now. Mm -hmm. I think he's, he's done a lot to carry this team. The the team has been up and down with people on the COVID list and, and having stoppages. And at one point there was, you know, half the defensemen were out. Um, But I'm not necessarily as certain that he's more deserving than a Connor McDavid or Leon dry You know, I think it's, Mm -hmm. it's almost blasphemous to say that out here because people think he deserves it, but um, I think you know when you're on a, a team that's picked at the beginning of the season to be a heavy Stanley Cup favorite. I think that the 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 odds should be against you at the start for winning the heart because that that speaks to the overall quality of the team. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not necessarily how people vote. You know, sometimes I think Sidney Crosby has won it when he hasn't been as deserving as somebody else. So it's, we'll see how it goes. I'm not necessarily certain who else I would put in that conversation, but I'm sure he'll be up there.
0: And keeping going with McCarr a little bit earlier, um, Calder or McCarr won the Calder last season. What was your, what was your reaction when he won the Calder? And do you think he expect, he, ex- do you think that he deserved the Calder that season?
1: Yeah, I think he did. I think there's a lot of good competition you know, he was, he missed, I think a little bit of time and obviously Quinn Hughes got hurt and missed some time, which really hurt his, his prospects as well. Um, I thought Kubalik had an outstanding end of the season. And if he had kept that up, he may have been more deserving. It was really, I think a lot of comparable guys right there as finalists. And so it wasn't a surprise to me that McCarr won. The bigger surprise to me was just his ability to step straight out of college and have such a, a high impact the way he has, you know, he seems sort of unflappable in the playoffs up into a point his first year. And then, you know, he had, he had an incredible amount of points in just a few games on a high stress playoff stage and he mm-hmm. just carried it right over into the next season and, and was really strong. And you look now, I mean, he plays top minutes on the team, and he was playing a lot of minutes, you know, last year. I think it's impressive what he what the workload he's been tasked with and how he's handled it. So it's no surprise to me that he won.
0: Another player who could come out of college and just dominate is Alex Newhook. How long do you think until he breaks into league and starts maybe dominating? I
1: think he's started started finding his feet a little bit in the AHL. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we'll see exactly how he performs. I think he's gonna be a guy. Maybe he's a, a black ace situation for the playoffs and might see some time. But, you know, he's going to be a guy that they're really going to want to give a, a look at a at a full training camp, rookie camp, preseason scenario, getting him if they're able to have a summer uh, rookie camp like they used to. Mm-hmm. He'll be a guy that they're really looking to see, you know, is, is he going to have the, the explosiveness, the speed, the strength to compete with men? But my guess is, you know, the way Makar has stepped in, the way Bo Byram uh, stepped in and looked pretty good, I wouldn't be surprised to see him
0: step in in a role next year. And who do you think has been the most surprising and disappointing player on the Avalanche this season? Oh, man,
1: surprising for me is probably Jonas Donskoy or uh, Val Nichushkin. You know, both the guys have kind of in the second half of the season really stepped up, not having Don score in the lineup. I think it's hurt the abs a bit as as with Grubauer here in the last couple of games. But mm-hmm. um, Val Nuchushkin's probably a guy I kind of a head scratcher for me. You know, I think they've given a couple of shots to players in recent years, guys like Nail Yakupov, who you, you're like, OK, maybe they sign this guy to a, a one-year deal and give him a shot and see how he does. I think he's been a delight. Um, I think Bo Byram was looking pretty good as, as time progressed um, there for disappointments. It's, it's really hard to say lately. Kadri hasn't, hasn't looked very good. He hasn't done a whole lot. You know, this team mm-hmm. kind of lives and dies by its top line. And I've been saying for years that, you know, the ideal is to not have McKinnon, Landeskog, and Renton and playing together because that focuses all your firepower on one line and another team can can shut that down. But if you can have those guys across two lines, right, or three, mm-hmm. that makes this team really lethal. So you need guys like Kadri to really step up and perform, and I don't know that he's necessarily been doing it lately. Verakovsky is kind of an up-and-down, hog or cold guy, too. Uh, started the season real hot and then has kind of fallen off a little bit here towards the end. Mm-hmm. I know ABS fans love to bag on Tyson Jost about being a disappointment, but you know, I, a lot of people don't look at the role that a player is being asked to fulfill by the team and they only consider points and optics, you know, and I thought Tyson Jost had a really good game against uh, Vegas last night you know, and he's in his role. I
0: think he's done pretty well. And you were talking about the top line. Do you think that that top line is the best line in hockey right now?
1: Yeah, I do. I think that it's, you know, it's hard. Like I said, there's so much uh, talent focused in one line that, you know, it, it's the equivalent of a dry sidle, McDavid playing together or a Crosby Malkin playing together. You know, those are, those are two teams where they have tried to not have them together at all times. Um, But it's a benefit for the abs when they can put all three together. You know, they put those three and Kale McCarr out on the power play, you know, and and pick another defender or forward to put out there with them. Like that's a pretty lethal combination of players. So I do think they're one of the most prolific and, and best lines in in the game currently
0: and playoffs are on the horizon the abs have clinched so do you think that this is the abs year to win the cup if there's been any year so far
1: i think this is the the best team that they've put forth um since 2002 when they should have won a third stanley cup So they're looking good. They're looking unstoppable. It's just really hard to gauge, like I said before, when you play a lot of games against Arizona and LA and Anaheim and San Jose, it's hard to gauge where this team fits in the, you know, upper echelon hierarchy of teams. Are they able to defeat a Tampa Bay, uh, Boston, uh, Toronto, Um, you know, could they, they're struggling against Vegas, you know, this is Vegas Avs is going to be appointment viewing in the the playoffs this season. Um, But they're struggling right now, and you want to see them turn it around to even get there. I think St. Louis looks poised to make the playoffs. They're fighting hard for it, and they could present – it depends on which team of theirs shows up, but they could present trouble. So it's really hard for me to gauge exactly how good they are given who we've seen them play this season. Mm -hmm. But I think they are, let's say, top six – for, for certain in mm-hmm. the league and then you could fill in the blanks you know as who else but we all know that once you make it into the postseason anything can happen
0: yeah and would you say that situation is kind of comparable to the north too where people are saying like a team like Toronto is just playing like consistently bad team on a night-to-night basis so we don't know how the playoffs are going to be going to look this season
1: yeah, particularly with Toronto's goalie situation, you know, it's like the Avalanche right now without Grubauer. It's kind of a, a question mark. Is this team capable of, of winning with what they have? Is Anderson going to be back in 100%? You know, those kinds of things. Could Montreal surprise them or Edmonton? You know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's definitely, it's like the cream rises to the top kind of analogy. You know, when you're talking about milk, cream is going to rise to the top of of milk and that's kind of what you're looking at the best are going to be significantly better than the worst of their division but how do they stack up now against the best of a division that they haven't seen all season
0: was was that a randy savage reference there or no not intentionally (laughs) and with the abs who do you think is the scariest team that they're going to face potentially this season
1: yeah, that's. I try to run through it. I, I should have pulled up the NHL standings so I have it in front of me, but obviously Tampa is good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Dallas on, an, on a normal year could be threatening. They seem to be really up and down. Nashville could be a challenge, but I, again, they're up and down. So it's really hard to say. Carolina probably is a, a top team that I would expect to put up a really good fight. You can't rule out the Panthers. Just the yeah. way that they've performed, especially with Quinville, you know, he's a coach that knows how to coach. Um, Toronto, I'd expect to be good. And I'm not sure who else in the North, just because I haven't seen as many games. Mm-hmm. Um, Toronto, I would expect to be pretty lethal. Uh, Vegas, and like I said, I mean, Minnesota is pretty good too, but they haven't played well against the Avalanche this season. So that's one of those where. You, you never know. I wouldn't expect the Avalanche to lose to Minnesota, but it wouldn't be the first time that they, they could pull off that kind of upset.
0: Mm-hmm. And we're also, not only are we close to playoffs, we're close to Seattle expansion. And what do you think Joe Sakic will do with this expansion? Like, who do you think is going to be a scary guy to leave, who's guaranteed protected that most people won't think of?
1: Yeah. I think uh, I I got to, to work through the last one. So I I got the list. I posted the list uh, on the website and got to see everybody be super upset about it. <laughs> I also was pretty sure Calvin Pickard was going to go to Vegas. We played a preseason game against L.A. in Vegas that year, and George McPhee came over during warm-up, and I, he knew Pickard, I think, through Team Canada for mm-hmm. the World Championship. Mm-hmm. And they had a long conversation and I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, I made a a point to let uh, Chris McFarland know. Um, So it wasn't a surprise given who they had. And now it's it's going to be a lot harder, I think, for them to lose a player just because Mm -hmm. you have so much young talent. I wouldn't be surprised even if they made a deal, although everybody will probably be a little wary of that given how Vegas prospered from deals with teams like Florida I would expect maybe a guy like Tyson Jost to go or JT Comfer. you know I don't have contracts in front of me to to really look at I've been trying to to think I should sit down and maybe do a list and see you know a guy like Eric Johnson has got a hefty contract and a no move clause and so unless he retires you know or offers to go there I'm not sure that, you know, they're mm-hmm. going to have to protect him. So then you wonder, are they going to go with, you know, eight skaters or how are they, they going to do it? Obviously they're going to want to keep McKinnon and Landis-Gogg ranting in. Um, you know, you used to think maybe Saad would be a, an expansion dangle. You sign mm-hmm. him, he puts up 20 goals, maybe you sign him to another year deal. Um, and he's the guy that gets taken. There's a lot of question marks on this roster, but Joe Sackick said at his last press conference of which there are a few a year uh, that the makeup of this team would be different next year because of the cost. It's a very expensive roster now and guys are going to get paid. So I think there's going to be a little bit of plastic surgery anyway, and maybe that involves a deal instead of
0: just uh, letting the guy go. So you were saying about how they might have to keep Johnson and they have a couple of good defensemen that they need to protect. Like, is Makar exposed already or not yet?
1: Um, I believe – I forget what the game total was. I should look it up. I thought it was – it was like 250 games or something mm-hmm. um, last time. I don't – I'm expecting – it might be three seasons. So he may not be eligible. Let's see.
0: Was he still on his ELC? Because I think if you're on your ELC, you're automatically excluded.
1: Yes. Let's see. All players with no movement clauses at the time of the draft be protected. First and second year professionals and unsigned draft choices are exempt. Um, so he will be done with his second year.
0: Mm. So he'll be exposed then?
1: Yep. So... I think that they'll have to protect him,
0: and then they have to choose between Taves and Gerard. Then, if they have to pr- pr- keep Johnson, yeah,
1: I could see Taves as a as a guy that goes or Gerard. I, mm. I think ideally they would want to keep Sam Gerard, and Taves isn't a bad signing. He comes in, he's played real solid for them, and then is somebody that you kind of like. Okay, you know, we've got ideally they're grooming Connor Timmons and Bo Byram and. You know, mm-hmm. the list goes on of defensemen in this organization. It used to be a real dry spot, and now it isn't. So, um, yeah, it says sorry. one one defenseman who is under contract and played in at least 40 games the prior season or 70 games in the two prior seasons. So I think that makes Makar uh, a player that they would have to protect.
0: Oh, okay. And on the forwards, do you think a guy like Nachuskin is going to get protected? Or do you think Sakic might not be opposed to exposing him?
1: No, I think he's a guy that they would expose just because he's, and this is no disrespect to him, but he's kind of a, an interchangeable type of player, right? He's a role player. He's a guy that they they exist around the league and you can slot him in. You can slot mm-hmm. that type in, but he's not a a build a team around type of guy like a Makar or, or that mm-hmm. top line. So... He's definitely somebody who will be
0: exposed. And last question before I let you go. What are your plans for the future? Well, that's a tough question.
1: Um, I've definitely been working on getting back into something more full-time in mm-hmm. hockey, whether it's with a team or with a, a media outlet. Uh, but it'd probably require moving And so the Mm -hmm. COVID situation, the pandemic kind of hurt that, that possibility. But I always have my feelers out, you know, listening to what's available, where a team could go. I really liked the communications aspect of my job too. And, and, you know, being in the the front office in the communications world, shaping the narrative. I'm a guy that's always liked to tell stories and, and get stories out there. My Mm -hmm. goal when I got hired by the avalanche was to provide, uh, an insight or a glance into the team that fans didn't normally get. So I was always trying to push the boundaries of what content can I put out uh, that fans haven't seen before? You know, what can I push my bosses to allow Uh, my big accomplishments were doing a a podcast where Mm -hmm. we would talk to players and uh, development staff and, and stuff like that. And then I did a behind the scenes video of the first stadium series game and I was too busy to do much other than produce. And I knew this was going to happen. So I brought in exceptional talent to shoot video and I got, you know, approval from the NHL for them to be there and from the team. And we had everything in place to do all this behind the scenes locker room stuff and all of these interviews. And we did a lot of cool stuff with the alumni game And then Mm -hmm. it fell apart because the avalanche fell apart in the game against the actual game against Detroit in the middle of a playoff push. And so we were supposed to be able to go in the locker room post game and hear the Patrick was speech to the team and everybody and the team lost so Mm -hmm. spectacularly that they, my bosses said, no way could we go in the locker room, um, you know, from a PR standpoint, but it's still, it's up on the avalanche website. You can find it. It's a, it's like a 23, 24 minute long, uh, real beautifully shot look at the whole stadium series experience. But that was something, you know, even during the alumni game, I would run down from the press box every intermission and do a, like a Periscope interview with players in the dressing room between periods about what their experience was like. Or during uh, the, the Avalanche do an intra-squad scrimmage or they used to. Uh, at the University of Denver during training camp. One of my ideas was to do penalty box interviews with a player. Every time he took a penalty, I would run down there and go in the penalty box and do an interview with him in the middle of the game going on. Um, so, like, kind of providing those those little looks into things is what mm-hmm. I thrived on. And the opportunity to do that is something that I always am looking for. But I just like telling stories, too. So the ability to to tell stories is
0: is something I look forward to doing in the future. And did, last, last question. This is the last question now. Uh, did you ever get into like fiction writing or was that not the kind of stories that you'd like to tell? Yeah.
1: yeah. It, my English degree was in creative writing and I always wanted to write a novel or something, but that's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty good at coming up with like a cool concept for a story, but not necessarily putting in the the effort it takes to get from A to B Throughout two hundred or five hundred or a thousand pages, you know, um, mm-hmm. and I should do more, and I don't. It's it's one of those things where you're like, oh, if only I had a whole year and a half of a pandemic to be at home, I could write more. And I've done almost no writing, so
0: um,
1: <laughs> yes, I have definitely thought about it and
0: should do it more. All right, well, great talking with you, and thanks again for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. This is awesome.
0: on the Broly Talks Hockey Podcast, I am joined by former Athletic and Denver Post contributor Ryan Bolding. We discuss how he got his start in journalism, the Colorado Avalanche, and the Seattle Kraken expansion draft. All of this and much more in this week's Broly Talks Hockey Podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode of the Broly Talks Hockey Podcast. If you did, make sure to follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter, and leave a 5-star review on Apple. Thank you and enjoy your week.